Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. I've been on hiatus for a while, busy with homeschooling, climbing out of the pandemic, some house projects, keeping up on a column, and working on a book project. I actually had to dust off my microphone today. At any rate, I'm pleased to bring you today's discussion with philosopher Lisa Thomas-Smith. Thomas-Smith is a lecturer of philosophy at Clemson University. She earned her PhD from the University of Colorado in May of this year. Today, we're going to discuss her dissertation, In Praise of Habit, The Necessity of Habit for Consistent Moral Practice. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Congratulations on your degree and your position at Clemson. Thank you so much for all of those things. <laughs> what is a habit generally? What is a moral habit? Why do we need habits and not just moral knowledge, reflection, and will? In other words, you know, what's your basic thesis? What's, what's it all about? Well, habit is ubiquitous. So um, we use it consistently and constantly. We can't not use habit. It's part of our cognitive mechanisms. Um, but generally what habit is, is that it is a disposition to act or think in a particular way. Um, and it is context dependent. So um, I don't, the, the habit to brush my teeth is not going to kick in when I'm sitting in my office, right? So it, it depends on where I am and what the context of the behaviors around me or the goals around me are. So as I'm getting ready for work in the morning, there are a slew of things that I do that I just don't think about. So, you know, I get up, I wash my face, I get in the shower, I brush my teeth, I do all of these hygiene things, and I don't have to think about any of them <laughs> because they're just, they've been done so many times that they're automatic. They're just, I don't have to think that I need to do them. I don't need to think about how to do them. I don't need to think about why to do them. I just do them, all right? Um, most of our, our habits that, that we go through, that we use through the day, work pretty much like that. Moral habits, um, my contention, um, is that moral habits are just as necessary as all of those other habits. So we make hundreds, thousands of decisions in a day. We, we do a whole bunch of things. Some of them are tiny, like you know, how much sugar to put in the coffee um, or none. Um, and some of them are very large, you know, like what, what is our plan for the day? What is our work goal for the day? How much of this paper am I going to get written, right? Um, some of them are, are big. The ones that are, um, that are habitual help us a lot because then we don't have to think about those thousands of things. We wouldn't get through half of our day. Um, if we actually had to think about all of those things. Moral habits work exactly the same way. So um, I can't think about all of those things. I also can't think about being polite. I can't think about respecting people's rights. I can't think about you know doing my moral duty, regardless of what your theory is. I can't think about it constantly. Every time I see a person, in my day. I'm thinking about other things. I'm thinking about how to get from here to there. I'm thinking about my project. I'm thinking about my classwork. I'm thinking about all of these other things. And so when I run into you in the hallway, it better be a habit 
<laughs> for me to treat you well, or I might not. I will fail because so those moral things I need to be habits just as much as I need for brushing my teeth to be a habit. So I understand the way I understand it is psychologically, the way our minds work, there's no difference internally between regular habits, brushing our teeth and moral habits, but that's more of a theoretical distinction that we make on top of when we're when we're thinking about our habits. That is right. Um, there's, there's no reason to think, at least in our current research, um, that particular kinds of habits work in different ways. So we have this habitual cognitive mechanism. If we do something enough times, our brain learns how to do it. So, and then it just does it in the context that is appropriate. So there's, there's absolutely no reason to think that, well, this is a, our brain goes, well, this is a moral habit. And therefore, I'm going to do this one differently than this other habit. It, it, our brains are really complex and really efficient and really impressive, but they're not that complicated. <laughs> it's kind of like, on the other hand, it, it's kind of like a computer garbage in, garbage out. Um, it will learn whatever you give it, and it'll learn it in exactly the same way. Okay, we seem to need habits because of our cognitive limits. We don't have the capacity to reflect carefully about everything we do. Is that the basic explanation for the need for habits or is that just part of the story or how does that fit? Um, I, I think it's probably a, a, a bit more basic than, than that. Um, we definitely need habits because of that because we can't reflect on every single thing. Um, I, I don't know that the mechanism itself is purposeful. I think it's probably just, you know, one of those evolutionary things that is completely accidental that led to us <laughs> sort of being able to survive well on the planet. Um, but that the mechanism itself, that's definitely part of the reason that we need it um, because we can't reflect. The, the other part though um, of the need for habit is just so that we can navigate gracefully. Um, it's, no, we can't reflect on all of those things. And, and maybe it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a caveat to that, or in addition to that idea of not being able to reflect, but we need to be able to think about, think, I'm putting that in air quotes and I'll explain why in a moment. <laughs> um, we need to be able to think about multiple things at a time. Um, we need to be able to walk down the street and chew gum, right? We need to be able to hold a conversation while, you know, while doing other things like, you know, sorting files or um, we need to be able to pay attention enough that we hear our child calling when we're working on this project that we're engulfed in. So the, the problem is that our brains really can only focus on one thing at a time. We like to think that it can do more, but it can't. Um, so we can we can switch really quickly, right? So we can switch from this thing to that thing and then back to that thing pretty quickly. And so we think that we're multitasking, but we're not. We're just changing our focus. So since we can only focus, really focus on one thing at a time, we need for something in the background to be able to handle all of that other stuff, like walking, <laughs> right? Um, while we're actually focusing on this other stuff. So our, our actual focus, um, is, is limited to just a, a single thing. Okay. 
So you also distinguish thoughts, or excuse me, habits of thought from habits of action. So how similar are these things really? Because I think a lot of people think of them as quite different things. Um, I, I think that conceptually they are quite different. I think probably mechanistically they're quite similar. <laughs> so um, we, the way that we, we think, if we think of thought as an action, right? if we think of thinking as doing something, um, then it works in exactly the same way. Um, but we tend to think of behaviors as being sort of outward, sort of physically external to us um, as we do them in, in a way that thought is not. And so I, I think that's probably why we, we distinguish them so strongly, but I don't, I, I don't think probably mechanistically they're, they're very different at all. Um, and so we have habits of thought in exactly the same way that we have habits of behavior. We think in particular patterns. And it's very possible that the, the thoughts that drive those habitual outward behaviors, like brushing our teeth, um, that those have the exact same mechanisms as just thinking through a math problem, right? Um, with no outward action. Well, that's pretty powerful because if you start thinking about your thoughts as something that you can indirectly cha change in terms of its habits, as opposed to that's just what it is and you can't, I can't change that. That's, that starts to open the doorway to making some big changes potentially. It does. Um, it is, it's far reaching. It's, it was actually when I first started thinking about this dissertation, it was thought that was on my mind. Um, it was, it was that, um, you know, there's so much in the world that is a result of the way, the patterns in, um, that we use for thinking through problems. Um, and it, um, it, it was kind of mind-blowing for me to think, well, what if we just change the patterns? And that's not a simple thing. <laughs> it's not just change the patterns. It's not, it's not nearly that easy. Um, it is incredible incredibly difficult to do, um, but, and it's because it is the thoughts, right? It, it's not like, um, I'm, you know, there, there's no mechanism I can put in my brain, like, you know, putting something that doesn't taste good on my, on my fingernails to stop me from biting my nails. I don't have a physical mechanism like that for my brain. I have to catch it. I have to catch that pattern of thought so that I can then start to change it. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing, but it is. It has very far-reaching implications if we start to think of thought as as patterns of habit. Well, and it's something like a, a bootstrapping problem because you have to you have your existing patterns of thought, and out of that you're trying to create better patterns of thought. And so at some point, it's kind of habits all the way down, and yet we have to kind of build ourselves into better habits. Yes, we do. Um, to, to build those habits, that one of the, the interesting things about habits is that um, you can't just break a habit. You actually have to replace it. Um, so the research is pretty clear that you don't just stop doing a thing or you don't just stop thinking a thing. You have to replace it with something else. You have to overwrite the old pattern, basically. Um, and so when we're trying to change patterns of thought, 
we really have to really, in a lot of cases, be creative in how we change those patterns. So um, if I have some kind of, you know, let's say that I have a bias that I really want to change. Well, telling myself to change it isn't going to work, right? I really need to change that. I don't want to believe that. Okay, that's great, but it's not going to change anything, right? I'm going to have to do something creative. I'm going to have to go and expose myself to opposite kinds of viewpoints. I'm going to have to go and involve myself in different groups of people. I'm going to have to actually put myself in situations where I have to think differently so that I can start to overwrite those, those old habitual patterns. And that's, that can be quite the challenge. You talk about compulsive habits versus goal-directed habits. So I guess what you're talking about is trying to overcome our compulsive habits, at least the ones that are harmful or have negative effects, in, and replace them with goal-directed habits that are more in line with our larger purposes of life. Is that basically it? Um, somewhat. So, so a, an important distinction um, for compulsive habits, I, I, what I don't want to talk about is um, things that are, or what I don't discuss in the discussion are, are things that are actually um, psychopathy kinds of issues. So um, I'm not dealing with abnormal psyches. I, I kind of don't like the the term normal and abnormal because it's really hard to pin down what those mean. Um, but but just intuitively, we kind of know um, that there there's a norm of psychology and that's kind of where I want to stay. Um, and so when I'm talking about things that are compulsive habits, I'm not talking about compulsive disorder. Okay. Um, so um, what what I mean is just things that are um, not necessarily in our best interest that we sort of compulsively do. Like we just automatically say that thing that popped into our head without the filter, <laughs> right? Um, and those are habits that we have formed that maybe don't add to our relationships, um, that don't uh, foster really... They, they don't foster beneficence, right? Um, and so we want, we want something that actually helps us, yes, in our larger goals. We also want things that help us grow, right? So we don't want to, um, so, so another distinction, so larger goals, like here's what I want the world to be like, right? Be the change <laughs> kinds of things in the community. Or maybe I want to do more charitable things. And um, but I have this, maybe I have this compulsion that doesn't let me do that, right? It, it makes me push people away. It, it makes it so that I am, um, I'm unable to engage in a really vulnerable way. And so I don't build those relationships. And those kinds of compulsive kinds of um, behaviors, those compulsive kinds of habits of, of thought are just, they're not serving us. And so, yes, those are the things that we definitely want to change. I wasn't going to ask this, but you made, you made me think of it. Is there, this is not your field, I understand, but at a certain point, right, there's stuff we can do for ourselves and there's stuff where we really need to go find somebody to help us 
therapist or what have you. Is there any kind of general pointers as to when, when, when you need to pick up the phone and, and get asked for some help in, in reforming some of these habits? Um, I think, yeah, um, I, I would think when it becomes anxiety producing um, would, would be just my general kind of intuitive answer. I know this is not my field, <laughs> but um, when it becomes, when it's something that I really want to change, that I've made an effort to change, but it's failing, right? Um, and I just, I don't have the tools. Sometimes we just don't have the tools in the toolbox to make change to go and seek some assistance, right? Um, and often we can say that we, we can tell when we don't have the tools. I have absolutely no idea how to change this thing about myself. Okay, well, my toolbox is lacking, so I just need to go find some more tools. That's when that, that therapist comes in really, really handy because that, that's their job, right? That's, it's their job to give me the tools so that I can make my changes. Yeah, we, do, we certainly don't want to make it sound like, you know, it's always all on you and you can change anything oh. if you just put your, if you just put your mind to it. So, so let's, <laughs> we'll recognize, you know, this can be really hard. Um, you talk about Aristotle and the fact that he thought that somebody could be highly moral only if they had a lot of moral training as a, as a child. I kind of want to think that we are more capable of self reformation than that. Is Aristotle right or to what degree is he right? Um, I, I think that, I think that you're right. <laughs> um, so I, I think we are more plastic than, than Aristotle gave us credit for. I understand why he thought what he thought. Um, it is very difficult as we get older um, to actually change those patterns because they've been set for a really long time. It's kind of like making a groove and the more that with the, you know, like wood and a chisel and the more that you go through that groove, the deeper it gets and the more set it is and the harder it is to fill in or overwrite with something else. So it, it makes sense that if you have this training from the time that you're a child, it will be much, much easier, right? Um, because you won't have to overwrite all of these existing patterns. So I understand why he thought it, um, but I don't think that that is exactly right. Um, I'm a little bit torn on the virtue idea. I, I think that we can develop virtues. I don't think that we have to have all of them <laughs> um, in order to be good people. Um, I think there's quite a there who have talked about virtue um, and they all have different lists of what the virtues are, right? So Aristotle had a list and Ross had a list and Rand had a list. <laughs> so um, there, the, the virtue idea itself is, is problematic, which is what Aristotle wanted you to habituate yourself into. Um, but the the idea that we have to do it from childhood and if we're not courageous from childhood and if we're not generous from childhood we kind of can't ever be i just don't think that's quite right okay well a follow-up on aristotle so you're a little ambivalent okay. <laughs> about um the virtues and character in your thesis you kind of just bracket that out 
but don't we need a certain amount of virtue, virtue of character to even care about forming good and maintaining good moral habits? That's an excellent question. Um, and it's a, it's a hotly debated one, actually. Um, so, so the idea is that we need to care about the good, right? Um, it's very difficult to dedicate yourself to something that you just don't care about. Um, it is, it's important for us to get that far. Um, I don't know that we have to have some kind of general good character in order to care about the good, right? Um, it is, it, it's interesting that when you even look at, at very bad people, right? You know, criminal enterprises like the Yakuza, right? They still do good things, right? On some level, they're still concerned about the good in some way. So, you know, if there's a disaster, it's very possible that the criminals are out there helping people too, right? Um, and so I, I think that if we can get just that far, if we can get to caring about the good, the rest becomes kind of rational. Um, it becomes sort of the, the kind of world that we want to build in which everybody cares about the good and everybody wants to respect the good, and we want a good world, a good peaceful world to live in. This is kind of universal kind of stuff for most people. Um, if that's the kind of thing that we want, then we just need to figure out what it is, right? So that's, that's the ethical theory part. That's, we need to figure out what it is. We can just figure out what it is, and once we figure out what it is, then we can, we can habituate ourselves into doing whatever it is. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't settled the theory part, <laughs> but the, the idea that we have to have like some level of moral character, I'm not, I'm not sure we have to have very much. I think we just have to have a general kind of, we need to care about the good because of some value. And once we get there, we can build the rest just rationally. Well, I've, I guess I've always thought of character as once you've taken a lot of steps toward habituating a lot of good moral practices, that just means you have good character. And I'm, I guess I never tried to build a lot more into it than that. So maybe that's why. Um, I, yeah, so there's there's a few ideas on character. There's this idea, a very general idea um, that, you know, if you're just a good person, then you have good character. Um, if you generally do good things, if you generally don't mistreat then you have good character. Um, that's very different than the kind of character that Aristotle was talking about, right? So, so Aristotle was concerned that we, that in order to have good character, we have to have all of the virtues and we have to have habituated all of the virtues. That's the only way to have a really good character and to get to the good life, right? Um, so there's that general idea, there's this very strict idea, and then there's this idea of deep character right? Like there's an underlying, even if you do bad stuff here and there, there's this underlying deep character that is unchangeable about you. It, it's, um, it's an idea that's, that's very debated. Um, and I think maybe that's more in line with what Aristotle was talking about. Like if you can build that, that underlying sort of foundational character that is unchanging and unchangeable, if you can habituate to that point, then you're good. Um, but I just don't think that we, 
I, I think it's very hard to say that we can definitely get to something like that. I think it's very hard to say that habit is the thing that will definitely get us there. Um, and I think that it's very hard to know when you've arrived. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm a little, I, I, I'm more in line with the sort of general character idea. Enough good habits will get us where we need to be. Okay, I buy that. So here's a hard one. You talk about praise and blame. I mean, the others have been easy. But, um, you talk about praise and blame and the fact that people are, to a large degree, products of their culture. So then how much can we praise and blame people for what they do? Especially if they're arising in really bad cultures like, you know, slavery, South, Nazi, Nazi youth, those kinds of things. It is very difficult. That is a, um, that's a serious implication of my, of my thesis, um, is that if our habits are wrong, then the things that we do in the moment, those things that we're not thinking about, because we're thinking about other stuff, right? This is the automatic stuff. Um, those habits that we do in the moment that are just not good, or those patterns of thought that lead us to that bad decision, but those patterns are habitual and they've been trained by the bad culture. Um, how much can we blame people for that? Um, the implication of my thesis is that our blame is misplaced. So we blame people for the store robbery, right? Or we blame people for the assault, um, or we blame people for the, the racial insults. Or, but the, the thing that we should be concentrating on is the pattern that led there. And so, it, especially if the person is very young, they really have no blame. And I mean, very young, like under 25, right? It, it's, hard to, it's hard to put the blame squarely on their shoulders when we consider the environment that they're living in and are surrounded by and have constant influence from. Um, and so the, the blame then becomes sort of dispersed and very hard to pin down, um, but there is a responsibility at some point, um, but there's a difficulty with the responsibility. So there's a, there's a responsibility to educate ourselves, right? Um, to take responsibility for what we believe and what we think and what we see as truth. There is, um, there is some, we have to take some responsibility for that once we hit adulthood, right? It might take a while for us to reprogram some of that information. Um, but what if you don't actually get the opportunity to really fully express that, that responsibility? So what I mean is if you are in a really insular kind of community where your entire bubble, like everybody around you 
um, all of your social groups, all of your family, all have the same sorts of belief sets. It's going to be very difficult for you to even question what's going on in your thought patterns. Um, and in that kind of situation, it's very hard to place the blame really anywhere. Um, it's also very difficult to see how people in that situation can change things. Um, so it's a difficulty, it's, it's unsettled for me how we actually solve that issue, but I think that we, we need to place less emphasis on the blame and less emphasis on the punishment and more emphasis on the pattern changes and the habit changes and the information changes. Um, because, and with the full respect of where these people are, it's like respect people where they are, even if you don't respect their positions, because you're going nowhere if you don't start in the right place, right? If you don't start from where they are, you just, you run right past them and nothing's gonna change. Um, but it, 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 it has some serious implications for things like the penal system and our systems of punishment and our systems of blame and all of this kind of stuff. Um, we are very quick to blame. We are very strongly habituated to think that punishment is the way. And maybe we need that's something that we need to rethink. Okay. Well, I guess it's just a really deep tension in terms of how much are we self-forming and how much are we products of our culture? And clearly both are at work. We, we have choice. We can direct our lives in substantial ways, but we're also deeply social creatures who grow up in families, who we start off mimicking our parents, then we enter social groups and there's all this vying for status around puberty and getting into your new social group. So there's, there's both sides of it. And I guess we, just have to do, do our best to account for both. Um, that's my way of punting. And we saying, do. I, 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 <laughs> I like the punt. Um, the, I, I think there's, um, maybe this is, this is kind of a, a cultural habitual change that we need to make. Cultures change, right? They shift. Um, cultural ideas change and shift. It's very slow. Um, but maybe one of the ones that we need, one of the shifts that we need um, is to put more emphasis on this, on this habituation and this habitual pattern change, um, to put more emphasis on mixing up groups because we have, um, we have our, our set patterns of thinking that are often very dependent on our, our, our social groups, um, they're, they're very dependent on a specific perspective. And we go looking for our own perspective. We have this natural kind of confirmation bias. Um, and so since we're looking for it, that's what we find. <laughs> um, and so it needs to be very normalized that we go looking for something else that we go looking for something that disagrees with us, that it's okay to be wrong. We hate to be wrong. We hate it so much. Um, so if we could just, it, and, and just, yeah, you know, like it's simple. Um, if, if we could make just that shift that it's okay. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to be wrong. 
we don't have to believe the same things that we believed last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We just don't. We can change our mind. We can get new information, right? Um, and we can rehabituate into these new patterns that are more correct once we find this new information. Well, Jonathan Rauch has a book out, The Constitution of Knowledge. And mm -hmm. you, you couldn't put that in your dissertation because of the timeline. But I'm wondering what you think of his idea of this constitution of knowledge. And he's referring to our social institutions that facilitate like cultural opinions and viewpoints. And so he's trying, he wants to build in something like the scientific method in this. And there's other people there. There's a book out called this. I think it's called the scout mindset. And it's trying to encourage people to be more self-critical, be open to the idea that you're wrong. And there's, so there's, there's various people and groups that are sort of trying to work on this or approach this and make it sort of normal to rethink our, to rethink our views and to expose ourselves to criticism. And there's this, there's this weird way, instead of being kind of proud and locked into your established viewpoint, you can kind of be proud and locked into the viewpoint that you can change your mind and you're, you can, you're stubbornly able to, to mind change instead of being stubbornly locked into one particular dogma. Um, what do you think of those? I don't know if you've read Rauch's book. What do you think of those efforts? I have not. Um, but based on what you just said, I love it. <laughs> I love everything about it. Um, the, there was a conversation that I had in one of my classes this semester um, about principle. And we have a great deal of dedication and pride in our principles. Um, we this is what we believe and this is what makes us good people because we believe it, right? Um, and my advice to this one student, um, for, for better or for worse, um, was maybe we don't need a dedication to principle. Maybe we need a dedication to truth. Um, and so we are constantly, as philosophers, we're constantly trying to find evidence toward some truth right? More and more evidence toward this truth or that truth. Um, to try to come up with, and I'm an ethicist, so to try to come up with what the, what the ethics should be for all of us, right? So we're constantly looking and we're constantly working. But the thing is that when you're constantly working in this kind of vein, we're not working to prove a certain point we're looking for what's right, whatever that might be. And so if I happen to be on the pro-choice side of the abortion argument, and I get enough evidence that shows me that the pro-life side is right, then I shouldn't have to change anything about me. I should just have to change my mind about what I believed was true, right? So my dedication to truth didn't change. Nothing about me changed, right? I have a dedication to learning what's right. I learned what's right. And so what I thought was right wasn't. And this other thing is, it's okay, <laughs> right? Um, it, it, needs to be, it needs to be okay, re regardless of how strong that feeling is. And that's another thing that we habituate. We habituate our emotional attachment to particular issues. And we, we feed it and we reinforce it and we reinforce it and we reinforce it. And then when somebody says that it might be wrong and they, especially if they give us a good argument, 
for why it might be wrong. We feel threatened because we we are, you're asking me to change me. You're asking me to change who I am. No, I'm just asking you to change your mind <laughs> about some data. It shouldn't be that serious. Right. But we we are especially in our political environment, the way that it is now, we feel like we have to be really emotionally invested in these issues instead of being invested in the truth about them. I want to back up about on this topic of principles for a minute. So clearly, if what we think of as principles are more like dogmatic um, talking points, that's bad. Um, I would argue we can hopefully we, we can develop good truth oriented principles, but you talk a bit about in your dissertation, the relationship between people's consciously embraced principles and their moral actions. So if we're talking about the, you know, the right set of principles, is there an inherent relationship between those things, our principles and our habits? Um, there can be, but often there's not. Um, we, we see this with people um who claim to believe one set of things who seem to who who will give you a dissertation level kind of idea of why this particular thing is right but then you watch their behavior <laughs> and it's like um but you said that you believe that but yeah um and the thing is that what we what we think we should believe and what we or what we even actually believe to be the case and the behaviors that we have habituated are not necessarily the same. Um, often they are, um, but let me, let me give you an example. Um, so I come from a very religious background. My family is, is very religious. And so I spent a lot of time in church as a child. Um, and the, there was a lot of, what it takes to be a good Christian. And one of the things was judge, don't judge lest ye be judged, right? So don't judge people. They were the most judgmental people I have ever seen in my life, <laughs> right? And so it doesn't mean that they didn't believe it, but they had habituated something entirely different. So yeah, they believed that they shouldn't, but they still did, right? Even when they thought, you know, you know, I shouldn't judge people, but, and here comes the judgment, <laughs> right? Um, so it, it's, um, it should be connected, right? Um, and, and in a lot of cases, we accidentally habituate the right thing. So, um, you know, our parents told us that we should al always say please and thank you, and so we do. <laughs> um, even when we don't feel, you know, like we should, actually say please or thank you um we will because it's a habit um sometimes we just sometimes we're nice in situations that we probably shouldn't be where we would be better served to actually just say the thing that might hurt somebody's feelings they would be better served and so would we but we will be nice right because we have habituated that even though we know okay sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind we believe it but we won't do it Right. So the, the principles that we have, the beliefs that we have, those are great. Um, if we're thinking very hard, 
if we're actually in the moral moment and we're actually rationally trying to process through a problem and we decide what the actual action is and then we take that action, then we have, we have lived in accordance with our principles. But if we didn't habituate it, then the next time when we're just running by or when we don't have that kind of time, we're very likely to fail. So they're not, they're connected, they can be connected. They are often somewhat connected. They are not usually, I would be willing to say, completely connected. That makes sense. What occurs to me, it seems like a lot of people think of principles as they give themselves moral credit for believing the right thing, quote, right thing. And how that kind of translates into how they treat other people is not is sort of either secondary or missing. And if that's the way principles are working, you can see how there would be a huge disconnect. Um, Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> disconnect. Um, and I, I think the other thing that we do is that we judge people based on our, our own principles, um, regardless of what the work that they have done to come to maybe an alternative principle. Um, and instead of having the discussion, we just label them as evil people and we move on, <laughs> right? Or we yell at them and we have, you know, these really contentious kinds of arguments or it, because we're not meeting people where they are. Um, and we're not, we just want people to think what we think. All right, just believe me. If you just believed me, we would get along, <laughs> right? Um, and that's just, that's not the way that this, this whole thing works. We're gonna have to, we have to actually have the conversation and then we have to do the work. Well, I, I wanna do a couple more sort of heavy theory questions and then get into okay. more advice stuff. So sorry about that, but I, it's interesting. You can always, you know, punt if you are so inclined. So you talk a lot in your dissertation about how our habits are culturally influenced and molded. But it, but I'm interested, you don't talk much about this, but I'm interested in your, how you view this. There's a lot in us that's coming up from our biology. So empathy is related to our being mammals, being primates, being apes. Um, the fact is that most men find women sexually attractive. Now, culturally, this can lead to objectification of women. So how is this, how are you putting together the genetic, like the biology of it, of our habits with the cultural aspects of it? And part of this is interesting because I think a lot of people blame bad parts of our culture. Like they pretend it's about our biology when it's really not. It's really this cultural, these bad cultural uh, tendencies. So. How do you how do you have, how do you think about how those things fit together? Um, I, my internet connection glitched, so I missed a little bit of what you said. But um, the the biology is, I, I think, very secondary. Um, the the wonder of the human biology and physiology um, is that it can be sort of secondary to our rational ability. Um, so I, I, I am willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to go this far, um, that we likely have some genetic um, 
predispositions, I want to say, um, some, some brain structural kinds of things. Um, we'd almost have to just to do that amazing thing that babies do, right? They take in the entire world and start making sense of it from nothing. Um, so there, there's, there's some brain structural capability there. I think it's very likely um, that we have just, just from birth, um, it's very likely that uh, and this is just my opinion, I have very little research to back this up, but um, that it's very likely that we have probably the ability to learn certain things more easily than other things. Um, but that's about as far as I'm gonna go <laughs> with the biology thing. Um, the rest of it, I think is pretty common to, to all of us with, you know, just a, a normal brain structure. I, I think that, you know, we're not biologically um, tended toward being good or being bad. I, I just, I, I don't, I think that's actually probably just silly <laughs> um, because the the idea um, that that we're just sort of, well, when we're, you know, from birth, she was gonna be a murderer. What? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I think there's probably a whole lot of influences, assuming a normal psychology, there's a whole lot of influences and a whole lot of patterns and a whole lot of inputs that had to go into getting this person there. Um, so I think that biology is very secondary. I think that culture and our social groups and the information that we get from media of all kinds is far, far more influential than our biology. Um, the, the things that we learn, the, the data that we take in, that we're not even aware that we take in, the, the patterns, the, that we learn our, our brains, if it's repeated enough, anything that is repeated enough, our brains will treat it like truth. It doesn't mean that we believe that it's true, right? We didn't go through some rational process where we went, this data supports that data supports that data. And so this thing must be true. We didn't do that, but we got this sort of repetition about this way that things are. And our brains treat it like that's the way that things are. And so that habituation, that habituated pattern of thought then influences how we think through problems. It influences our perspective. It influences the way that we reach out to other people. It influences the way that we receive what they're trying to tell us, right? So I, I think that's far, far more influential and dangerous <laughs> to us culturally, our, our cultural um, influences, all the media. Um, imagery is just so important. The things that we hear, the things that we read, um, we have to be very, very, very careful what we let in here on a repeated basis because it will become the way that we behave and the way that we think. Okay. 
So you talk about, you're a little bit skeptical of certain moral theories if they are put too much emphasis on the need for reflective action all the time. So you're a little bit worried about at least certain strains of utilitarianism, Kantianism, if you take it the right way or the wrong way. Um, so say a word about what the importance of habits says for what the moral theory has to end up being. Um, I, I think in a lot of cases, whatever moral theories we have, um, whatever moral theory we accept, it has to be practicable, which means we have to be able to do it, right? Um, and in the Kantian case, he wants for all of our moral decisions, every one of them, um, to only be counted as a moral choice if we rationally do it from a standpoint of duty. This is our duty to do. And so therefore we're doing it. If we do it for any other reason, then it's not, it doesn't even count as a moral choice, right? Um, I think habituating that is very complex and probably not terribly likely. Um, the, the reason that I have a worry about certain strains of utilitarianism is the same thing. Um, with things like rule utilitarianism, we're supposed to be figuring out um, what the, an act utilitarian, we're supposed to, inism as well, we're supposed to be figuring out what creates the greatest happiness, right? Um, and we're supposed to do that if we're act utilitarians with every single thing that we do in a day. Everything is a moral choice if we are act utilitarians. Whether or not I put my coffee in the blue cup or the red cup is a moral choice <laughs> for the act utilitarian, right? Um, so it, it, that just there's no way that we can think through every single choice in our day. We've already been over that. And so act utilitarianism just isn't gonna work. Um, for rule utilitarianism, we can just follow the rules. We can habituate the rules, right? Um, if there aren't too many of them, we could habituate the rules in, the, in sort of the same way that, that we could habituate you know, the, the virtues. Right. We follow, here's, here's a set of 10 rules. We follow them a lot. We habituate all the rules, right? Um, but we sort of lose the spirit of utilitarianism, of actually maximizing happiness when we do that, because we're just following rules. We're more like Kantians. We're more like deontologists um, when we're just following the rules. Um, so the, the ability to habituate whatever the theory is, has to be part of the theory. The, the practical part of the theory um, has to be that I can, I can take these kinds of principles, I can practice certain things and they become automatic, right? And they become automatic for the, for the right reasons. Um, I, I don't know that um, most of our existing theories, since they require that we think through every single decision, but we make a rational choice that we look at what we're supposed to do and we say, well, if I do this, then, you know, for consequentialist, if I do this and this thing happens, if I do that, then that thing happens, then I'm going to do the thing that gives me the best result. We, we're not going to do that, <laughs> right? Um, with every single choice, 
habituating that kind of thing since we can't do it. I just, um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of any theory that requires that I think through every single choice because I just can't. I'm not capable of it. Nobody is capable of it. Uh, brains just don't work that way. Um, and so any theory um, is going to have to, um, it, it needs to account for our cognitive abilities and limitations, okay. or it's just not usable. Just a quick side question. There's intense, I'm in Colorado, there's intense noise, uh, intense winds here today. Is that coming through the uh, microphone or is that, I don't no. know if you can, okay. So okay, <laughs> for I'm me, I'm just like this, this gale force <laughs> winds all around me. So hopefully that's just totally blocked out on your end. But um, it's, yeah, it's some weird storm system we had move in, so. Wow. Thankfully we have buried power lines where I'm at, so I don't expect to lose power instantly. Um, well, we've kind of, my nice neat categories, I've kind of totally um, blurred, but I just have a couple on more of a more practical nature. So when we're trying to form a new habit, how easy should we generally expect that to be or how hard should it be expected to be? How patient should we be with ourselves? Because a lot of people really beat themselves up if they're not, if they're still having trouble getting to where they want to be. And how, but at the same time, how can we avoid excuses for not forming better habits? Because on the other hand, some people are, um, they're like, well, I can't, I can't improve myself in this way because of reasons X, Y, and Z. So how, how do you think about that? So um, new habits um, are not terribly difficult um, when they're brand new, right? Um, you just need to put a process in place. So, and then there's an established kind of process. Uh, Wendy Wood has done a lot of work on this um, for establishing a habit. So um, rep repetition, very important. Um, reward, you know, give yourself some kind of reward so that your brain knows, oh, this is a good thing, right, for me to do. Um, so so there's, a, there's an established kind of process for a new habit. Breaking a habit, much, much harder, because <laughs> okay? we have to, not, we have to think more. Um, we have to, we have to think more about the context of the habit, um, and we have to overwrite that habit. So not only are we trying to not do the other thing, we're trying to replace it with a new thing, right? So it's a much harder thing, much harder process to do. Sometimes it takes some creativity to do that. Um, I would suggest reading all of Wendy Wood's work. <laughs> She's done a lot of good work. What was the name again? Wendy Wood. Okay. Um, so the and there's a lot of have a lot of books out there um, on on habits. Um, I the author is escaping me, but Atomic Habits is a very good uh, book as well on um, on how habits work. But the the thing with um, with breaking habits that you have to realize that you need to overwrite it, right? You have to do something else to replace the existing habit. Um, as for like being patient, um, your, your brain is going to do what your brain is going to do. <laughs> so the, the rate at which you will um, be able to form a new habit or replace a habit 
um, is somewhat dependent on the context that you're in. So if you're in a, an environment that is unfriendly to this new habit, it's going to be harder. Give yourself more time. Um, and you're not done until you're done. <laughs> Whatever that is, right? Um, you're just you're just not done until you're done. Don't put time limits on these things because you can't predict how your environment is going to work, how the context clues are going to work, how your social groups are going to work. How it, it, there's, there's too much unpredictable about the habit itself. Um, and there's a lot that you probably won't realize about when that habit is triggered. And just getting in touch with that might take a while so that you can actually massage your environment um, and make it more friendly to you. So um, the reinforcement of that habit, strong reinforcement of that habit is so important. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Read things about that particular habit. Get your brain in a positive place about this new habit. Put yourself in this kind of um, good mental environment for this habit so that you can, so that it's easier for your brain to, to, to pick it up without resistance. Because when you're trying to change something, our brains are really efficient and they like the way that things are, <laughs> right? It's really efficient for it to just do what it's always done. Cause you know, it's already a habit. Why are we doing things here, right? Um, already doing this, why are you changing stuff? So there's some, there is some resistance and make sure that you understand your belief resistance, that your, your conscious resistance to changing this habit. Um, it's not, it's not an easy process to consciously change or form a habit. Um, if it's brand new, yeah, it's, it's an easier thing to do. Like, you know, I want to have the habit of going to the gym, you know, every Wednesday after work. Um, then set yourself up for it on Tuesday, <laughs> right? Put your, get your clothes together, get everything together. Um, you know, do some positive affirmations before bed on Wednesday night, get up with the intention on Wednesday morning and just go, you know, on Wednesday evening. After a while, it will become a habit that you do this thing at the end of your workday, you go to the gym. You do this thing at the end of your workday, set a context clue, set a trigger, and then you go to the gym. And if you set that pattern, then when you get to that point at the end of your day, you will go to the gym, <laughs> right? You'll just do it. Um, so the, the, the formation of the habit will take as long as it takes. Be as patient as you need. Actually, just throw patience out the window. Just don't even... <laughs> Don't even worry about being patient or impatient. Just let it happen as it happens. Do the things that you need to do. And it, it'll just, it'll happen as your brain adjusts to the new pattern. Just, just keep going. You're done when you're done. That's, that's my advice. <laughs> okay. So you talk about, there's this interplay between the internal work and the external environment. And so it occurred to me that maybe it just, depends on what the particular problem is as to which of those is more at play. So like somebody with a, like with alcohol or substance abuse issue, um, they might just need to absolutely get that all out of the house, right? It's going to be real hard to 
come clean if you got whatever drug of choice just sitting around all the time. And also not hang out with people who are doing that kind of stuff all the time. If you're a gambling addict, you know, you need to probably not go into the casino to begin with. You know, you don't want to just go and look at all the possible ways you could gamble. <laughs> you probably want to not be in there. Though I guess maybe there would be some context in which you're kind of pushing your, I don't know. Um, you're, I guess there could be some context in which you're intentionally exposing yourself to certain things. But is that the way it works? And in some cases, it's like it's almost all environment. And in other cases, it's almost all internal. And there's usually some kind of blend of those two. Um, I would say there's usually some kind of blend. Um, when it comes to things like addictions, um, anybody who's ever tried to lose weight <laughs> knows that you better, if you're, if you like the sugar, you better get it all out of the house, <laughs> right? It's got to go. Um, but the thing is that there is, there is a strong internal component, even to something like that, to the alcoholic who needs to get all the alcohol out of the house, right? Um, there's that starting point, that point of absolute dissatisfaction. So um, there needs to be some leverage if you're going to do some hard work. So there needs to be a reason for your brain to sign on <laughs> to this effort, right? Um, so the, the leverage has to be there. I need a strong reason. I need a strong reason why I'm doing this, why I'm going to do this work, why I'm going to get all of the alcohol out of the house, and I'm not going to go buy more, <laughs> right? So there has to be like those two parts. I'm going to get all of the cupcakes out of the house, and I'm not going to go buy more. I need a strong reason. When I walk past the bakery and the grocery store, I'm not stopping for the croissant. Okay, so there has to be some leverage, um, and that's internal, right? That why work, that reason work. Um, why is this important to me? What am I going to get from it? What do I have to give up to get it? Why am I willing to do that? Um, so all of this, all of those, that rational work is at the heart of this kind of um, concerted effort. Because if we don't have that, we'll give up tomorrow, <laughs> right? Well, that was a nice idea today, but the bakery is right there, <laughs> right? Or, you know, I really don't want to cook tonight. I really could order that pizza. Um, but if I have a strong reason, right? Um, you know, my friends invited me to go out to the bar tonight. I need a really strong reason to say no. Um, so there has to be there has to be some internal work. I don't think that we get through this really difficult external work of, um, you know, changing our friend groups or changing our behaviors within our friend groups um, or within our family groups. You know, my maybe my friends go out to the bar every Wednesday night. Um, well, either I'm going to not go or I'm going to have a Coke <laughs> or a Diet Coke, right, when I go out with my friends. Um, and that's going to be hard. And it's the internal work that's hard. If I have good friends, they're not going to say a word about my Diet Coke, right? They're not going to pressure me to have a drink um, or to have, you know, the decadent dessert. They're not going to pressure me to do that if I have good friends. But it's still going to be hard because my habitual trigger is that I'm with my friends. And so I do this. 
so I need a I need a good strong strong reason to do that external work. And so I I, I think the the internal stuff is 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 really important. Well, I guess in a certain way, the external stuff is a product of habit anyway. Like we habituate what we buy and where we walk and where we drive and what we say when somebody such and such person calls us on the phone. So I guess there's a way in which it's, it is all habit all the way down um, insofar as we are habituating the ways that we set our external circumstances and world. That wasn't really yeah. a question. That was just the way I was thinking about it. And, and the, no, no, I, it's a good point though, um, because we have, we do have levels of habit. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, it, it is habit all the way down. And there's a big chunk in the middle that we have to change in order to change one main habit, right? So there's a big, there's a lot of things that we have to change in order to support that new habit. It's not just, I'm just going to do this thing instead of that thing now. It's just not that simple. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of internal work that has to go on. Okay. Oh, so that's, that's one reason why certain well-entrenched habits are so hard to change because they're related to so many other sort of side habits or related habits. So it can become, yeah. Okay. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. It's like not only habits, not only are they deeply, deeply ingrained, but they're deeply inter intertwined and therefore hard to, you shift one and you got to shift all this other stuff as you go. Hmm. That's a useful, exactly. that's kind of useful and daunting at the same time. Well, I thought we would shift. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I thought we'd shift more into culture at this point, which you talk a lot about, um, about the pathologies of culture and how we try to change those and why it's hard to change. So one problem in the United States everywhere has been bigotry, racial bigotry. Do you think that we've started, at least in this region, to develop better cultural habits of reflecting on our bigotry, like we're more open to it? And I, I pull up, you have this nice quote of Montaigne. He says, custom can shape us not only into whatever form it pleases, but also shape us for change and variation. So I'm wondering if we're becoming a, a more, a culture more amenable to positive changes. Um. I think we are, um, and this might be really optimistic, <laughs> a really optimistic view of what's happening, uh, but I think that, I, I think we are, and I think we're seeing the pain of it. Um, the, there is always gonna be resistance to any kind of cultural change. It causes upheaval um, because we're looking at changes in narratives. We're looking at changes in the way that people think of themselves and their family lines and their country's history and the world's history. Um, and it is upsetting. <laughs> it is mentally, psychologically very upsetting. And so we see resistance. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of, a lot of people, and I, th I think it's probably been, I don't know, a hundred years in the making, really, but culture is really slow. And so you get upheavals, you get ups and you get downs and you get, um, you get this sort 
and then you get another upheaval and things get a little bit better and you settle into a status quo that's not quite right. Then you get another upheaval and you settle into a status quo. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of a, a cultural pattern. And I think we're in the midst of one of those upheavals. Um, and every time we get a little better. And so we're learning more. And, and I think there's more data at this point there's more research, there's more for us to learn about the way that our brains work and the way that our opinions work and the way that our cultures work. Um, and so there's more data. And so I'm very hopeful that the, um, that the, the regional, like really good pro progress that we see, um, I'm really hopeful that that is sort of a, a precursor to the spread of, of more progress and, and more of an, a willingness to say, okay, well, maybe there's some things that I didn't see, right? Maybe some, some things that there's some perspectives over here and some effects that are being felt and some things that are happening that I just couldn't see because I'm over here behind this wall. Right. Um, there's there's things that that I think are going on in the culture. We're we're becoming more um, aware of the way that different groups are portrayed in movies. We're becoming more aware of the the people the voices that we hear in the media. We're becoming more aware of all of these kinds of things. And and I don't know that we're all that we all know why we need to be more aware. <laughs> Um, but it is about habituation. It's about those thought patterns. We have these patterns of thought about particular groups. This is, and our brains think, our brains treat it as truth. This is the way these groups are. Because we've had this kind of repetition. We have this kind of habitual thought. And so we're learning slowly that we have to change it. And so we will feel the backlash of it we will feel the resistance of it. We will have a lot of angry people. We will have people at the extremes on both sides that are screaming loudly because they just don't, they don't know how to process that change yet. But it's a good sign that we have the screaming, I think, um, because that means that something is changing that's making people uncomfortable. Well, this, the problems we're seeing today aren't all related to that subject, but we're definitely seeing some problems and some of it is racial nationalism. And that seems oh, yeah. to be often associated with just rampant conspiracy mongering about all kinds of things, such as the presidential election results, which is pretty scary and it continues to be a real problem. The pandemic, um, even people that I, uh, I've just, I've been surprised by a number of people um, and how they responded to that. Um, about you know our so-called communist officials and all kinds of things along those lines. They're pretty rampant, at least in certain segments of our society. So, what do we do about what do we do about that? Because <laughs> oh, well, I'm just going to solve that problem right here now. <laughs> well, as much as I appreciate Steven Pinker and social progress and all of this, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit frightened. I mean, and then you add. Uh, on the global scale, the racial nationalism that's pushing both both Russia and China into very aggressive po military postures. And I do worry about the moral arc 
not having a having a drop off instead of keeping to go to go up so i don't know yeah i know i understand that sorry that's a big that's a big question but yeah um i i think um boy that that is a really big question and i and i have i have lots of thoughts um part of it is that um Okay, so here, here's the big statement. I think that we've done a lot of things wrong. I think that we've taught a lot of things wrong. I think that we've learned a lot of things wrong. Um, one of those things um, is individualism. I think we did it wrong. So um, I am an individualist. <laughs> I am. I, I think that um, we sort of come in and go out all on our own. Um, but I think that we are also very deeply social and we left that part out um, of our individualist teachings in a lot of cases. Um, we, we decided at some point that freedom and individualism, at least in, this is just my view of the way that things are working uh, or seem to be working, is that uh, we, we learned somehow at some point um, that individualism and freedom meant that we didn't really need to care about the person next door. Um, it's their problem, right? Um, their life is their problem, and we don't we don't need to we don't need to be concerned about that. We need to be concerned about me. Um, and I, I don't think that that is a reasonable way to have a world. <laughs> I just don't. And so what we have partially, and, and this is a very, actually a very small part of the, of the very large problem. Um, what we have partially is a, a, a power problem um, that when we are all on our own and when we decide that the neighbor doesn't matter, and then we're asked to be concerned about our neighbor, we resist because we're not supposed to have to care about that. We're supposed to care about us, right? We're supposed to care about what's happening in my house and you're making me care about what's happening next door. And I don't have time or energy for that, <laughs> right? Because I have a pattern of thinking that says that I don't have to be. Um, and so I, I, I don't wanna be concerned about that. Um, I want to just keep myself to myself and when you're asking me to care about people I don't know and never cared to, um, when you're asking me to protect people I don't, I have not had an individual concern about because I don't have to, um, then you're not only infringing on my, my power to control myself and my life, you're infringing on my energy right? You're infringing on me. You're making a judgment on me. You're telling me that I'm a bad person if I don't do this and this and this, but I'm free and I should be able to do these things, right? Um, so, so I think that um, we left something out um, that we got to that kind of viewpoint about each other and what it means to be deeply social people. Humans just are, and we have ignored that um, we, we didn't manage to marry um, the, the 
the individual freedom with the deeply social part. Um, the other thing that I think is going on is that we are, our, our politics are so corrupt. Um, our politicians are so corrupt and dishonest. We can't trust them. Um, we know we can't trust them. The best of them, we doubt if we can trust them, <laughs> right? Um, and when we have that kind of an attitude toward the governing body um, on all levels, um, all of the, the libertarian kind of baseline functions of government, even if we keep it to right there to enforcement and legislation and executive, we don't trust any of them, right? And when you have that kind of situation where we have put people in office that we don't even trust, where we have done the lesser of the evil so many times that we cannot trust the people who are leading our country, it's very easy for people, especially in, in very powerless positions where they feel like they don't have any economic position, they feel like they don't have any political power, they feel like they don't have any political say, they feel like their, their opinions um, and the viewpoints of their bubble are being attacked by everybody else, then it's very easy to convince them that they need to protest and if needed, attack <laughs> the government of the country. Well, here's a guy who respects us. We're going to follow him to the grave, right? Um, even, even when you can show that maybe that, that respect doesn't actually exist, um, they will double down, right? Because of all of these different kinds of factors. Um, and then the cultural part that their, their bubble, their viewpoint, the way that they think about groups of people, the way that they think about what the government should be able to do, the way that they think about what the government should be providing, all of those things seem to be under attack, but they have these patterns of thinking that are ingrained and it feels like an attack, that it feels like you're asking them to be something that they aren't. Um, and so, we have failed, I think, in a lot of cases to meet these people where they are in this country and try to, to move, and don't ask me how to do that, I don't know, <laughs> but to meet them where they are and try, try to move the meter. And we have failed as an electorate to put people in place that we can actually trust so that we don't, it's not so easy to convince people that we just have you know, a fake election that happened. Um, around the world, we are moving toward this authoritarian idea. And this one puzzles me. Um, in this country, we have, you know, sort of this, this move toward the one leader, um, you know, screw the legislature and, you know, this bicameral thing, who cares about that, um, which is democracy, overrated, right? Um, that's very scary to me, but it's not just here. It's all around the world. And, and it makes me wonder if we have too much power concentrated in such a way that there's too many people who feel powerless. And so um, it, it, we don't deal with uncertainty very well. Humans don't, it's like we need a little bit 
but too much and we freak out. <laughs> so um, we don't, we can't have that level of uncertainty that comes with not being able to trust our government. I'm not sure, here's, here's the puzzling part for me. I, I don't know why we think some one leader would somehow be better. <laughs> um, okay, so we have a whole government of people that we have some power to hold accountable, but we would rather have one person that we have no control over at all. I, I don't, that's a puzzle to me. Um, but I think that we have large widespread problems um, in our distrust. Um, the government says that we should trust the science, but the government is corrupt and so we shouldn't trust the science, right? Or we shouldn't trust the science that they point us to because they're corrupt, right? Um, and, and so we're gonna do our own research, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, that's a bad word, but it, it doesn't, it makes absolutely no sense. We have to trust experts. We have to, one, make sure they're an expert in the right field, in the right way. But once we do, we trust them because it's going to cost them if they're wrong. All right. So we can trust the experts. We can, we can trust the science. They have the respect of their, their colleagues. If they're wrong, they won't. They lose their careers if they're wrong. Right. So there's a stake in it for them to, to be right. If you have a so-called expert who does not have that stake, it's not an expert. You can move on to somebody else, right? So, you know, that we have commentators who are telling people about what to do in an epidemic. They're not experts, but they're being trusted by people because the government told them to trust these other people and therefore they can't. It, it's, a, it, it, it's a horrible, awful problem that we got ourselves into by not demanding that our leaders are trustworthy, by not electing people who aren't. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how we get out of it. I share your, your frustration and your fear um, because I don't, I, I don't know that we can get out of it. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix this one without like tearing the whole thing down and starting over. <laughs> well we could talk about this for a very long time i'm sure we will talk about it for a very long time but i think for now i'm gonna shift gears because i don't really have anything to add on that um so shifting to your more of your where you're at personally and professionally there's a lot of news stories in academia about wokeism and cancer cancel culture a couple of professors have quit or been fired recently over whatever disagreements. I think that philosophy departments are to a large degree insulated from these kinds of disputes, but I was wondering what you're now having entered into academia professionally, what, what are your general thoughts about the state of it? Yeah, um, I, I tend to agree um, that philosophers, just because of the nature of what we do, are a little bit or insulated. Um, we are, it doesn't mean that we don't have strong opinions um, or viewpoints or that, you know, we think one side is right or one side is wrong, um, but we're constantly researching 
looking for more data, looking for more viewpoints, looking for more perspectives to see what we missed. Um, we are not entirely insulated from things like um, trying to get more diversity into the, into the profession. Um, philosophy is still very much male and white. Um, and there's, but within philosophy, there's a very good reason for it because we are looking for all of those perspectives and all of those viewpoints for all of that additional data that we could be missing, right? Um, the, so we have, we have some of that, um, and, and, but I think in a very good way, I think in a very positive way. Um, as a whole, um, academia at the, at the college level um, is, is struggling a bit because in, in many cases, it's really about the money. Um, and you get it, right? It, it's it, universities are ridiculously expensive to run. Right? <laughs> there's there's a ton of people that we have to pay, um, not just you know the the faculty, the lecturers, the professors, um, but you know administrators to run the thing, um, administrators in each department and people who clean the bathrooms and the people who maintain the, the fountains and the lawn and um, the equipment that's needed for, um, for classrooms so that we can teach online when things go weird, <laughs> right? Um, so th they're, they're massively expensive to run. And so it's, it's very important that there's money but the thing that happens in academia is that it tends to, when it becomes about the money, then we often lose sight of why we're there, right? Excuse me. So we are, most of the money, especially at research universities goes to hard science um, because that's where the grants are, right? It's very hard for me to get a grant to write a philosophy paper, <laughs> right? But it's, it's much, much easier if I have something to experiment on and I'm gonna have some findings that are gonna go into the scientific community and that might help some government projects or you know, some military projects or it, it, that, it, the, the money path there is very clear. The money path for the humanities is not so much. Um, for, as for like cultural things, um, I think that the instructors are often in a tough spot um, because they believe strongly in particular issues like the, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter protests and marches that happened um, in, that are still happening, but, but that happened, you know, through the middle of 2020. Um, when instructors, you know, like gave their classes permission to leave to go to do uh, protests. And then they got pushback on professors that didn't, right? So professors were like, well, no, I'm gonna stay here because I'm gonna teach the topics that I'm here to teach. And it, it didn't have anything to do with protesting for, and this is class time. And so I'm gonna be, um, 
in and I think in that case we are we're we're too we're too probably judgmental on both sides. Um, I can't say what the right thing is there. I do have a personal perspective that I do not ever share my personal opinion in class, ever. Um, if I am, because I think that I am in an authority kind of position and my job is not to tell people what to think. It's not to tell my students that, you know, you should be on the pro-choice side of abortion or you should be on the pro-life side of abortion. My job is to say, here is the argument. Here's what the literature looks like. You figure it out, here's how. Um, and the, so, so I have, I have some kind of some, um, some mixed feelings about the, the activism in the classroom um, because I think we have more power than, than we think we do around what, what kids, I mean, most of my, my students are, you know, 18, 19. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to tell them what to think. That's way too much responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but but I, I I do share the um, I, I have some sympathy for for instructors who think that you know there needs to be some kind of some activism in their teaching. Well, you mentioned. I don't know uh, if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's kind of an open-ended question, so I, I guess it necessarily does. Uh, but you mentioned philosophy, at least in our region, has traditionally been dominated by white males. You don't all, you don't look necessarily like all your colleagues. Does it, do you have any, do, do that give you any perspective on intersectionality and ideas um, along those lines? You know, I, I've had a little bit of a blessed existence uh, within, within philosophy. Um, I, I, at CU Boulder, um, the department there is just, phenomenal and it's it's geared toward um really exploring issues wherever it may take you um and so um they have they actually did make quite an effort over the last few years um to get a little bit more diversity in the department um but the whole time i was there there were three black people um three black grad students um, so it's like there, there still aren't, there aren't a lot, but in a lot of cases, it's not the, it's not the fault of the department specifically. When we, when we can't see ourselves um, in particular roles, because we just don't seem to fit there, um, it, it's very hard to recruit people into that, that kind of profession. Um, it, it's one of those psychological things that just, it, it seems like a mystery to a lot of people. Well, uh, you're a black woman, of course you could be a philosopher. Well, yeah, of course you can. But when you look around and everybody there is not you, um, it can feel, it can feel exclusionary, even if it's sort of unconscious, right? It could feel like there's a wall. Um, and so it's, um, it, I, I, I have always been resistant to that sort of <laughs> thing. And so it, it never actually occurred to me until I got to grad school and I'm like, oh, <laughs> look at that. Somebody actually had to point out to me that I was the only black person in the program. <laughs> I didn't notice. Um, but the, 
I, I, I have seen so many times that people just say things like numbers of repetition. People start to think that that's the way that, that it is. Your brain believes the way that it is. That's the way it is. So I've seen so many times people from different groups go, well, people in my group don't do that. Right. So, and it's just, it's in sort of unconscious sort of that's someplace that I just don't go. Right. So um, I'll never forget quick story. Um, I was, um, it was way back early 2000s. Um, I was in, no, it was before that late nineties um, because I was still in, in our apartment before we bought our house in Lawrenceville, Georgia. And um I was, my aunt was coming over and I had some music on and when she walked in, it was classical music because I love classical music. And she said, you're listening to that? And said, yeah, why? She's like, black people don't listen to that. <laughs> so there's a, it was a surprise to her. It was unexpected. And when you think of, and it's not that she believed that we shouldn't, it was just sort of a, well, no, that's just not what we do, right? Um, and when you have that kind of thing with professions, you know, that's why we have still fewer women in science. It's still why we have fewer Black people in all kinds of professions. It's why we have less men who are nurses. It's why we have less men who are elementary school teachers. It's not because they don't want to teach. <laughs> it's because that's not what you do, right? Um, so the the, represent the representation thing, uh, I think, is, is it's an important part of, of the whole academic picture um, but you know, again, I, I haven't, I haven't felt the pressure so much, um, in, in my academic career thus far, but it, my, it was, I don't doubt that it was, um, a, a feature of my hire, let's say, once I made it past the, the initial stages of, of showing that I was qualified for the job, um, it would not surprise me if it were a factor that I'm a black woman in philosophy because I'm kind of a unicorn. So, you know, in my, in my recent hire, you know. Well, I can see why it's important to be able to see people that you recognize in some field you want to enter. But it seems like I've always thought about it as it's probably more important to reach kids when they're younger um so my anecdote so my i have a six-year-old he really likes science and netflix did this series with a lady named i think it's emily calendrelli and she filmed this series it's like a science show and she's doing you know little science experiments and she filmed the whole thing when she was nine months pregnant and i thought wow this is great because it's <laughs> like you can't miss the fact here's a woman pregnant woman doing science and she's a role model in science so you know i i guess the way i've looked at it i've tended to look at it is you know you when you get to the late stage, it's almost too late in a lot of ways. You need to be reaching down to kids when they're younger and helping them understand what's possible. Hey, these doors are not closed to you because of who you are. Um, and that, and you know, more education, making sure that kids are able to get a high quality education and go through the doors that they want to go through. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, no, I, I entirely agree with that. Um, I, I think that. Um, that's very true. And I think that that is a serious failing of our current public system. Um, that there's just, it's too rote. It's just, 
here's the material in this outdated book that we have to learn for the test. <laughs> so, yeah. So oh, I had a, I was looking for a, um, for a book actually to use in my, in my course next semester. And the, the rep for this, um, for this publisher I was, that I was talking to, she said that she has, I think 13 or 14 year old twins and they don't have textbooks in their school. And she's like, so they never learned to actually work through a text at all. Cause they just don't have books. Well, this is off topic a little bit, but I'm kind of worried about some of these news reports. I haven't dug into the details, but my impression is that there's some tendency almost to dumb down the curriculum further. Cause we don't want, you know, we don't want some kids to feel left behind and some kids to feel like they're, you know, beating everybody. And that makes me worried because it's like, no, no, we need to be raising the bar for everybody, not lowering the bar for some. And so some of these things make me a little bit, a little bit concerned. Yeah, it makes me concerned too. Um, so, so I think, but it, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? So um, if we have students that are so far behind um, that, and we have this high bar, they're never going to catch up, right? They, they can't, it, it's like, you know, okay, so I went, all the way through algebra one, and now you want me to understand calculus. Um, and I, ha I have no way to make up that gap. And in, in the public school system, um, their responsibility is to, um, you know, to the extent that they can with the regulations that they have, um, is to teach these kids Okay, so I've got a room full of fourth graders. Half of them know the basis of this thing and half of them have no clue. So I'm gonna have to bore half of my class with stuff they already know so that I can teach the other half so that we get to a level so that I can teach them the rest of the stuff. And guess what? I don't have time to do all that. <laughs> So the bar gets lowered. Um, and, and so there's, there's the worry that you're leaving kids in a spot where they can't learn more. And there's the worry that you're not developing kids who can learn more. And I don't know how we fix that without, again, tearing the system down and starting over. Um, and higher education, what I see in my classroom, what, what I saw... Um, in Colorado and what I'm seeing at Clemson um, is that I have to teach more basically than I figured I'd have to. Um, when I teach papers, I have to teach them how to write a paper. They don't know. <laughs> okay, So I learned that in high school. It was a requirement for me to write a lot of papers in high school. And they were graded harshly. It wasn't like it was okay, just write something on the page. And if it's enough words, then you pass. They were graded harshly. I, I had a teacher who told me, if you use the word it in your paper one time, it fails. And she would flag people. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? It made my writing 
so much better. <laughs> I could not use the word it. Um, but that's not the kind of teaching that kids are getting now. And so I have to teach them how to put together a paper, how to, what should be in your introduction and what should be in the body of your paper and what a conclusion should include, like really basic kind of put a paper together kind of stuff. Um, you know, maybe you shouldn't start a sentence with the word which when it's not a question. <laughs> you know, that kind of grammatical kind of stuff. And um, it's way more basic than I would have figured that I have to do. But given the stresses on the public school system that they're coming out of, I think at this point, that's just the, I've got to meet them where they are. I can't say, well, okay, you're going to write, you know, you're going to write a thousand, fifteen word, fifteen hundred word paper, and um, it needs to have all these components and not tell them how to do it and expect that they're going to just know. And it's not fair for me to say, well, okay, then you failed this paper because you didn't know something when it's not their fault they didn't know. So I, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult spot, I think, for all of us. Okay. We'll just reform K through 12 and we'll be, then we'll be set. Yeah, that's all. Just do that. <laughs> so I was going to ask, we, we both have some interest in Ayn Rand. I feel you being a little bit rebellious there. I do think your thesis, it struck me that your thesis is largely compatible with Rand's ideas about psychology. And she has a lot about habituation in her, some of her writings. So what have you found interesting in her ideas? And then how have your ideas, how have your views toward her maybe evolved if they have in grad school and beyond? Yeah, um, so I think that um, her, her habituation ideas come largely from Aristotle. She was a great fan of Aristotle um, with good reason. Um, if, if anybody who's read Aristotle understands the brilliance <laughs> that is there. Um, but I, I think that um, she departed a bit um, from uh, from Aristotle um, in that she didn't seem to think that, you know, we needed to habituate from worse kind of things uh, in order to be good people. Um, and I, I think that her, her virtue set um, is quite different from, from Aristotle's virtue set. So, you know, Aristotle included things like um, beneficence um, and which Rand does as well, but, but also um, style, <laughs> right? That would not be something that, that would have been on Rain's radar. Um, and Rain includes things like productivity, which was not on Aristotle's list, right? Um, so, so she departed a bit from, from the Aristotle. Um, I, I think that the main departure that I, I have, or, or my main evolution, um, from, from Rand's base theory uh, is that I am not as confident anymore um, as she always was in the rational faculty. So um, she did believe in habituation, um, but um, she was very much in line with the traditional philosophical ideal of 
rational thinking through moral issues, right? Um, and Rand's theory is really kind of a hybrid. Um, she pulls in some virtue character stuff. She pulls in some rights stuff. Um, and the, the, the difference, I think, um, or my main, I guess, departure from her is in that rational bit. Because even in rights theory, um, there's, it's all about the rational decision. And, um, you know, she's, she's not willing to discount consequences, but even in consequentialism, it's all about the rational choice. Um, and the virtue theory, it's all about, you know, even Aristotle was all about the rational mean. It's about the finding the golden mean between the extremes, and that's where your virtue sits, and that's all a rational process. Right, so um, it's all about the rationality. Um, and then for Aristotle, it's just the practice. But um, I don't think that the, that we live in our moral rationality, just minute to minute. Um, and so I, I think that the the habituation is a bit deeper even than than she would have thought and i think that the context in which we live is more influential than she would have thought um and i think that the the triggers for our behavior um and the automaticity of our behavior is more impactful um than she would have thought um and i i think that we have a much, much harder time resisting cultural influences than she thought that we did. Um, she, she knew that the, that the culture was really important. Um, she made quite an effort in all of her work to change it, to change the way that we think about economics and to change the way that we think about politics. Um, and in some ways, the way that we think about relationships. Um, but she was, I, I think, I think she underestimated a bit just how difficult it is to resist all of those cultural influences. I'll just end. What, what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, I am working on spinning some of this out into papers. Um, and I am also working on uh, a project on the limitations of empathy, um, which is sort of a buzzword right now. Um, you know, we should all be empathetic and we should, you know, look at different groups in different parts of the world and we should feel empathy for them so that we, you know, feel some kind of motivation to help them. And um, I, I think that we can't. <laughs> it's my, it's, yeah, uh, it's kind of a strong, strong thing to say. Um, but I think that empathy is learned. And if you haven't learned, if you haven't habituated um, the, the patterns that allow you to empathize with particular viewpoints, or if you're just ignorant of that viewpoint, you just can't see the other side, then there's, it's pretty hard for you to, to feel something that you have no basis for. Well, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. You're uh, welcome. This thanks for having me. This has been the Self and Society podcast. Our guest has been philosopher Lisa Thomas-Smith. For more, please see ariomstrong.com. Thank you.